If you're wondering how much charcoal it takes to overdose, just Google it. But if you're an Adventist and you're wondering, is our evangelism outdated? You've come to the right place. Today on Stuff Adventists Should Know, how to talk about God like a normal person. As cultures throughout the world are becoming less religious, especially in Western countries, there's been a lot of conversation about the relevancy and effectiveness of the Seventh-day Adventist Church's evangelistic methods. I talked to Oliver Glantz, an Old Testament professor at the Adventist Theological Seminary, about our traditional methods of evangelism and how they can be renovated to converse with the secular mind. So, um, first, can you define the concept of evangelism? Well, I, th- I think I, w- I would define it more from a, let's say, non-church environment perspective, more from, from a, a semantic perspective or, or a linguistic perspective, e- evangelism uh, com- coming from the Greek word oyangelion, which is basically a good message. So in which form it comes, it doesn't, it doesn't define whether it's an email or, or whether it's a, a postal package. Uh, it's, it's about the message, so in what form I do not really care so much about it, as long as it's, it arrives at the receiver in a way that is um, doing justice to the name, namely it's a good message. That it was received and how it was received characterizes evangelism the most for Oliver. Not so much the method or which postal service delivers the message. So as long as it's communicated and communicated well, it is successful evangelism. Lately, I've been having a lot of questions about whether traditional evangelistic series are truly relevant and effective in our Western environment. What do you think about these methods? I never, from small on, I never felt attracted to to these events. Part of it might be personality. Um, so I'm not necessarily blaming the system. Part of it uh, m- might be personality. Uh, I, I like more the private, uh, more the, the intimate, the, um, uh, the, the me-you situation um, than a monologous uh, situation. Usually uh, you know, traditional evangelistic uh, formats are more monologous in, 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 their, in their style. So you are on the receiving side and, and the other is the teacher. So you have kind of a teacher-student situation uh, being built up and, uh, and that's... I'm much more from my personality, but it might might not just be personality, but also perhaps the culture that I represent. I'm much more uh, interested in collaboration, uh, interested in exploring together than uh, being being a student. That's not because I don't want to be humble. Obviously, I, I am a student of life, and I I hardly know anything about it. Um, so, but I would like to share with somebody the curiosity about what is it, what is life, and what is truth, and what is it to love well, and and what is it to you know stand up for yourself, and what is it to live a moral more life, what is morality? So, what do you think about the long term effectiveness of evangelistic series, at least in the way that we'll, we're familiar with how they're performed? The idea is kind of spread that what is after the evangelistic crusade, then you're done, then you have arrived. I mean, if, if you got baptized, so then then we're done. Then we are successful. The project is completed. Um, the, the 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 product has been produced. So, um, and I think at least again, personality or perhaps a reflection of culture. Um, I very much sense that life is never over. So uh, qu- questions never come to an end. So uh, answers are always just temporary answers, um, and 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 the journey will continue. Um, so. 
I could never uh, settle and and um, come to peace with the, with the fact that when the crusade is over, we we have reached a success rate or a not so high success rate. Uh, measuring success on a very constricted time uh, frame is 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 contradictory to me how life works. Um, life never comes to an end. Love never comes to end. Morality never comes to end. Reality never comes to an end. So you need to continue the conversation. So what you're saying is that in order to continue educating people, we would have to follow up the series with another series and with another series after that, almost indefinitely because learning, especially spiritual education, never ends. Right. If we believe in this medium, we shouldn't be stopping at just one series. However, though, it it seems impossible to be meeting the needs of a mass of new converts who probably have a lot of different questions. So then we would have to change the format, uh, you could say. Um, another problem with, with the format is, and it's based upon this teacher-student framework, it, it assumes is that you know the questions and you know the answers. So the people that stay usually after a crusade um, or after evangelistic series are those people who share the questions and who are satisfied with the answers. Um, but uh, what, what I found is one reason why I probably didn't feel so much comfortable always with, with these evangelistic series is that the questions asked were not my questions. So what, uh, what you have then is, uh, and you see that I think when you would do a psychological analysis uh, of what's going on in some of these series is that um, the, the visitors, for the lack of a better word now, um, considering the limited English vocabulary that is at hand for me, is they are brainwashed, not on the answer side, but on the question side first. So first they have to become owners of the questions for which we have a successful treatment for. I call it brainwashing because um, that what is in the brain, the, the important question that the person brings to the convention, are washed away and a new set of questions is uh, put in there for which we have the plug. So let's say ev uh, evolution theory. Um, if I look to my peers, um, let's say those between the 30s and 40s, their burning question is not evolution theory. They, they don't care so much about the beginnings of this world. Um, now, I'm not saying that this is a non-necessary important question. It's just not a question that is intrinsically present with this type of, of person. So now you come to an evangelistic series and, and one of the topics is usually evolution theory, uh, evolution and creation. And so now you have a person who doesn't ask the question about evolution creation, um, receiving the answer that creation is the true way. So now you first have to learn the person that there is this question that is actually really relevant and that you should really, you know, know about. Once you have done that, that's the brainwashing part, so, so to say. Um, and then the person says, oh, yeah, this is this is really an interesting question. So now you get the answer and then you're surprised that on the next evening, uh, the answer didn't rock anymore. It doesn't have any power anymore. You know, that great answer with which we can uh, counter uh, uh, evolutionary theory is doesn't seem to have any power. Well, the reason why it doesn't have any power because the brainwashing is very temporary. You sleep a night or two and your true, only authentic question or your set of questions that you authentically uh, um, live with, exercise um, uh, with, they, they, they come to the fore again. And so when they come to the fore, there's no answer anymore. 
to the question that you never owned. Uh, be because you have lost the question and with it you have lost the answer and so you're there again alone with your question. Uh, it's also, I could imagine one reason why people or why the church is not exploring this journey more is because it requires uh, em empathy. It requires to get exposed to the unknown, namely to those questions that you might yourself not have. Um, so you, you go out and, and find people and they have questions, questions that you never ask yourself. So when you haven't asked them yourself, you're definitely not having an answer for, for those questions. What, what do you do in these situations? Um, and I think that's where true Christianity and true evangelism actually starts. So you participate in the questions that other people have, even though they're not your own questions. And then you start searching together for the answers and you become a team member rather than a teacher who has all the answers. In order to arrive at the questions of non-believers, wouldn't we need to exit our little ideological bubble to some degree? Our Adventist Christian community bubble? At least the, 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 the format of community that we have at, at present. Yeah. Yeah. I think I really resonate with what you're saying about the ownership of questions. I know there's people out there who are just learners. They can open a book about anything. It doesn't matter if it's relevant to them or not. And they just eat it up. I don't learn that way. I need to be concerned about the issue first. It has to touch me somehow. Like we just had a leak under our sink and had someone approached me at work and started talking to me about plumbing before we had the leak, I would have just probably tuned him out because there's nothing for me to latch onto in that. But now that I have a plumbing problem, I've been thinking about it like crazy and it's been driving me nuts. So that information becomes gold to me because it's relevant. Right, right. And I think this is really the key to, to successful evangelism. Um, you know, when, when, when I got involved in a more, let's say, strategic way of doing evangelism on a personal level, uh, the, the, I, I basically, looking back now to it, I think I intuitively assumed that the questions that I might not have, but that the other might have, the questions are uh, an immense potential. Because when you have a question, you have a will. So when you have a question, you're participating in a process of suffering uh, to, to some sort of extent. So you're a crisis. You, you're in a crisis. Well, if you're a crisis, crisis you, you are able to outperform yourself. So um, now the, we, we as Christians, we want, we want to see that performance happen within a context of the event, Evangelion, uh, within the context of the gospel, so within the context of the biblical message. So you want to have that crisis, which is usually attached to craziness. We want to have that craziness take place within the context of, of the biblical prophets, you, you could say. Um, and, and that's what, what I found out when you, when you partner with the other person, um, in their questions, um, you can start exploring, uh, together answers and you provide sources, prophetic sources whether it's biblical reflections, philosophical reflections, and other other type of literature that allows that craziness to get a direction uh, and a direction that 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 will hopefully end at the cross in a satisfactory way. So crisis, um, craziness, <laughs> the cross, kind of ah, kind of this the, this the three route, C's. Uh, the the three C's. But I think this is really the potential of it because when people have questions, this is the starting point. The starting point is not your answer. So, um, and then 
you know, infuse the question to that answer into the other. Because then you're not really working with the power and the energy and, and the craziness and uh, of of the other. Yeah, I I think a lot of people listening to this who care about the gospel and think it's a good message to proclaim are probably sighing a breath of relief hearing you say these things. Because I feel in me that what you're saying is true to human nature right now in 2018. You're describing how normal interactions happen between individuals. I'm sure there's also people who are listening who prefer the traditional evangelism model. I don't think it's something to fight over, but I do think we're already in a time of the Western church where attractional methods of evangelism are not widely effective anymore. It worked extremely well when everybody was Christian, but it seems like we're fishing in the desert, man. <laughs> Jesus went to where the people were at. He was in the crisis with them. He ate with them. He looked like them. He empathized with them. He did not judge them. So to me, what you're describing sounds compatible with Jesus' method of evangelism. Is that what you do? I myself have been quite involved in, in missionary work in Amsterdam on a personal level. Um, so and, and there I think I, I really saw it happening. So I, and, and that's where I really started enjoying evangelism. It's not, not anymore anything that has to do with, oh, this year, you know, we have to, it's 2018, new year, we have to schedule our evangelistic activities. When do we do it? Oh, no, okay. Um, no, it's more like you go out and you become a human being. So um, you, you, you meet some, somebody in, in the cafe or you meet somebody in a restaurant or you meet somebody on, on, on a bank in a park or you on a bench in, in the park and you start talking. I'll give you an example. So um, I was walking with, with a friend of mine through the streets of Amsterdam in a, on, a, on a summer evening and we were looking for a nice restaurant that would kind of fit the fit the scenery of the day and um, so we're walking around and the two guys came out of a restaurant or a cafe and um, young guys I guess 25 years old something like that and um, we were asking how the cafe is so how they liked it um, how the atmosphere is and so we got in a conversation and uh, so we asked, hey, are you guys students here? And uh, yeah, yeah. So the one I think was studying biology and the other, I think it was political science. Uh, what, what he studied? And then we said, so, oh, wow. So um, why, why do you study it? So, And there was no evangelistic agenda really in it. There was more interest in the person, uh, you, you could say. And I think this is the start of evangelism. So it's about being with, with the other. So we're asking uh, why they did it. And they said, you know, to be honest, um, we just need to get a degree and make some money. And so they were starting telling, well, wasn't that nice? I mean, it must have been crazy. You know, our parents in the 70s, so they, they went to the university. They did the, pursue their studies because they believed they could change the world. You know, they, they studied biology or political science because they thought they can change the system and they can make this world a better place. And But we today, you know, we, we are kind of disillusioned. Um, but to be honest, you know, our parents, they said, they are now also, also sitting in front of the TV. <laughs> and whenever some, some, some glimpse of passion uh, comes up in us, they, <laughs> they kind of look down to us and say, yeah, you know, you, you have to grow, grow up. Once you grow up, you don't have any passions anymore, you know. Well, and here we had a conversation. So wh why is that actually? So, and that question was actually borne by four people by me and my friend and by, by those two others. We haven't asked that question before. So why is that? So for a normal person, there's nothing abnormal about this interaction between Oliver, his friend, and these two guys. 
In fact, it's not abnormal for a conversation between two Adventists at a potluck. But from an evangelistic paradigm, this interaction is abnormal because they weren't trying to steer the conversation toward religion or creationism or whatever agenda some Christians push. In other words, it doesn't feel like a trick. Right, right, right. There's no steering happening. I mean, steering, the only steering that is there is empathy or, or sympathy. And, and it's not kind of this humanistic empathy, sympathy, where we all want to embrace love and then... No, no, it's... There is this craziness that is born by questions that, that press on us that require to be pursued. And they require to be pursued by humanity. Um, whether you're Christian or Muslim, or in that case they probably were agnostic, you know, we don't care. It's a question that we have. I think that's the key for me for evangelistic uh, activity is the first thing you you have to perceive for yourself and for humanity as such we are all sailing in a storm so and I call the storm reality so that's basically reality and that reality asks questions that reality faces you with beautiful things and with nasty things and you have to respond to that you have to do something with that and our response gets the form of culture um, so you have, if, if you kind of visualize that, you have on the one end, you have a human being, on the other end, you have reality, and human beings within reality are constantly confronted with love and death and birth and hunger and frustration, and that, that's what reality is. So now, or we meet each other here now, and, um, so that that's a reality. So we respond to that, the fact that when I saw you just a couple of minutes ago, I shaked, no, I hugged you, I think. So I, I responded to that reality. So, or you know, when my grandmother died, we had a funeral service. That that was a response to to that reality. Or when my daughter was born, well, we had a feast, a celebration. Uh, we actually renovated the house uh, or some rooms. Uh, so that that's a response. And culture is a response to reality. So if if culture seems to work. That is, if culture is able to negotiate well between human beings and reality, then it is traditioned, so to say. So we do the same thing throughout the ages because it seems to work. Now, when I as a Christian come into, into contact with somebody else, I'm directly interested in what is your storm? So how is your culture looking like? That is, how is your boat? So to say, if, if, you know, if, if the, if reality is, is the water, are the waters and, and you are this little figure in, in this big whirlwind uh, of, of storm, you have your nutshell, you have your little sailing boat that you've produced. And my question is, how does that look like? How is your boat working? So, and I'm asking that not just for empathy and sympathy. I'm also asking that because I know my boat. And I know my boat has some leakages and, and I have to fix my boat too. So perhaps the other one has, has something that I don't have. So there's mutual interest uh, also from a survival instinct perspective probably. So, um, so I'm interested in their boat. Their board is nothing than culture. Well, I think anyone who has been involved in Adventist evangelism understands this, that I'm almost not allowed to admit my theological boat may have some holes in it. We're God's remnant church, dude. We can't say that. Right. We're supposed to be the ones who tell people the hard truth. Right, right, right. I, I think it needs a philosophical, some, to some sort of philosophical mindset or let's say a framework, 
a philosophical framework that allows you to make yourself vulnerable. For example, when, when I was younger, let's say in my teenage years, I think it's normal for the development of a human being. You, there's the phase where you're very dogmatic. I mean, every kid has been, been there, whether that kid is atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Christian, this is a necessary state in order to progress. So, um, <clears throat> but there was this phase that when somebody like my biology teacher back then in, in high school would, uh, would praise the, the moral superiority of um, of evolution evolutionary theory i directly resisted this is wrong um, well 10 years further down the road uh, my approach was different so because atheism is nothing else than an instrument in that boat uh, or, or evolutionary evolutionary theory why is it so successful? Why is it tradition? I mean, it survived now for more than 200 years. So obviously it must do something beneficial uh, to, to the people. So my approach to the question is then no more resisting, but interest. So, okay, what does evolutionary theory provide so that that human being on the one side is able to negotiate with the tragic of reality on the other side? So obviously it must do something beneficial. If it's not doing something beneficial, it's going to be kicked out. Uh, nobody cares for the religious reasons. They, in the end, they everybody cares for survival. So, and if evolutionary theory helps you to survive, they will hang on it. If it doesn't help you to survive, they will find another theory um, that will do so. So now I, I'm ana analyzing evolutionary theory. I will ask not anymore from an apologetic, um, dogmatic perspective why uh, this doesn't make sense. I said, explain me. W what does evolutionary theory do for you? So how does it help you maneuver through the storms and suddenly you, you you will get a sense of the positive sides of evolutionary theory or atheism you realize hey the same voices of atheism are actually found in the bible and i've never seen them so because i've been so dogmatic about it and when, when you read jeremiah isaiah they deconstruct religion they they basically say there are no gods in fact in in genesis account genesis 1 genesis 2 they demask uh, what people believe to be gods. So they, they use a very naturalistic language. Um, the sun is not even called the sun because it was, it was Shemesh was, was the name for, for God. So it's just called the big light and the little light uh, and the, the light of the night and the lights of the day. And, uh, and, you know, the waters were not even the sea because the sea was also a God. It was just water. So it's, it's a very, you could say a very, atheistic language that, that is used in order to clean up uh, the the highly religious assumptions of, of, of people. Now, the fact that religion is man-made is one of the central messages of, of atheism. And now, since I started to become more sympathetic to what people believe and think, I realize, oh man, this is, this is one of the central messages of, uh, of the Old Testament, definitely the Old Testament prophets. Religion is man-made. We need to deconstruct it. There are no gods. So uh, that's why we shouldn't go to witchcrafts. That's why we shouldn't go to, you know, speaking to the, to the, to the deads. Because that's just man-made. That's just an imagination. That's just... It's a dead person is soil. That's how harsh reality is. So um, now after the sympathy, uh, the question is now what's not going what's not working well in that boat with regard to evolutionary theory or that's, what, that's what we normally focus on exactly yeah again it goes it goes back to the fear of the unknown and also if you're in that place where you're willing to be sympathetic to someone you disagree with we fear that we're sacrificing truth just in order to put ourselves in their shoes and see through their eyes but 
really when you're doing that, I think that's very rewarding when you can actually understand someone on their ground and speak to them through questions that they've they've naturally come to and trying to think the way they do, you also come to those those questions and then you're not just going to treat them like they're stupid. You actually understand where right. they're coming from. You understand right. the crisis that they might be a part of, yes. you know, feeling. And that, that's a crucial part to, to to not assume they are your students because that's what traditional evangelism usually does. So Pretty, it, it seems condescending. Right. You realize they are actually very intelligent. They have answers to questions that you don't have answers for. So, But I have answers to questions they have not answers for. And so it becomes a collaboration. So for me in my, in my evangelistic activities, we usually met like once a week or once per month or once per two, whatever it worked out for us. And it usually wasn't a one-hour session where I would teach them Bible studies. Um, but it was, um, we gave each other tasks. Actually, when we met, we first developed a strategy because this is our life project. It's not their life project. It's not my service for them. It's our service to each other. So so what we then said is, what are our questions? What are our mutual questions? What are questions that might not be mutual, but that, that need to get attention? And then we would develop a master strategy. It would be our strategy. It's not my, strat- not my Bible series for you, but it's our strategy. And each encounter would have a different strategy. I mean, each person would develop a different strategy. And so what we would do is, we would start on each question that we're tackling. We would give each other reading assignments. So I would read the other person's books and answers and YouTube videos and, and whatever there is. You know, and I would make the other person read the things that I thought make my boat sail better. So, um, And after we have done a critical reading of, of each other's literature, then we would meet again and then we would discuss it. So, and we will together in this, in this sense of, of humanity, we would filter out what what doesn't make sense what makes sense it was uh, secondary from whom the material was uh, it was our material yeah. so um and and if you truly believe that the prophets and 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 the bible has superiority well then it must show it so i don't have to show it it must show itself it must become self-evident so for, for both of us and and that's what what I've experienced, and uh, and that has made me become an even deeper Christian, you could say, because I've seen that happening. So, if I'm understanding you correctly, humans already function in a way that accumulates knowledge and philosophy and worldview through human interaction and conversation since the day we're born. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of what I know, I know because I've picked it up here and there. But unfortunately, those beliefs can almost become unchangeable when I only interact with the same perspectives all the time, people who believe and confirm what I believe. So if our community over time forms the belief that we're right and everybody else is wrong, of course we're going to assume the role of teacher with people who believe differently than us. That's how the Pharisees were. They shut themselves in away from the other until they despise them. And if the Gentiles wanted to come close, they had to cleanse themselves and offer sacrifices just to associate with the Jews. And maybe we do that with our evangelism. That's that's a really big question. Do we teach unbelievers the right doctrine and the right behaviors so they become like us and then we think our work is done? I don't know, but I think you're right. I think healthy evangelism is one 
in which both parties are on equal ground. Right. Filtering through their accumulated beliefs together yes. and finding answers together. Yeah. yeah. And it also becomes an exercise that is not just intellectual. It's also a social exercise. It's also a love exercise because you start to love each other, really. I mean, not, not in, a, in, a, in an erotic sense, but, but you really start to see the value of the other because the other has so much revelation time. So, And I have so much revelation time. And so usually an important part for me, that would be my, let's say, my impetus in such a boat-to-boat -boat encounter is, um, hey guys, uh, I have learned that the meaning of life doesn't come through literature only so and, and, and through cognitive content only. So what I have learned of what my little boat has found out, it can move quite well through the waves of reality if you start eating good food and if you start uh, running or you know doing some exercise and so our journey becomes also holistic it's not just an exchange of ideas so my last question is how does one navigate disagreement in this type of dialogue the type of culture that i would represent the postmodern culture is is not very likely to be easily and quickly dogmatic so there's always the hope that somehow there is some resolution uh, to, to, to the problem, you, you could say. Um, so that that having said, of course, there are things where disagreement takes place. But this disagreement is also celebrated because this is, you know, our project. Um, and we have not agreed upon that we have to agree on everything. Uh, we have agreed upon that we help each other to maneuver through life better. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you again, Oliver Glantz, for joining me for this conversation. It was truly enlightening. Stuff Adventists Should Know is written, recorded, and edited by me, Nick Hosted. Randy Ban is the executive producer of the podcast. His job is to make sure every episode is terrific. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you learned something.